Chapter twenty three of Carpenter's World Travels Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter twenty three The City of Golden Sands. I am in the Hotel Golden Gate in Nome, the city of Golden Sands. Today, when I stood on Front Street at high tide and threw a stone into the ocean, it ricocheted over a beach which was once a gold mine. News that gold had been discovered in the beds of creeks nearby was already beginning to bring prospectors to this part of Seward Peninsula when, in 1899, gold was found right on the beach here. It was discovered by a United States soldier who panned out enough every day or so for an extra meal. Then, Missouri Bill made his big strike, getting out $12,000 worth in one day. Soon men poured in by the thousands from all parts of the world to wash out this easy money from the sea sands. The gold was in a kind of ruby sand, which lay in beds from six inches to two feet deep for forty miles along the shore. As the miners came in, each picked out a space, drove in a stake where he stood, and drew a mark on the sand around him as far out as he could reach with his shovel. Out of such small holdings, within less than two months, a million dollars worth of gold dust had been washed from the beach in front of Nome. Just west of the town, two men cleaned up $3,800 in three days. When the beach mining was at its height, the people went crazy. Mining cradles were in great demand, and the price of lumber rose to $400 a thousand feet. Coal brought from $50 to $100 a ton, and cabins and shacks of one room sold for $600 each. Wages at once jumped to $10 a day, and during a part of the time to $2 an hour. Then the sands began to play out. In 1900, those in front of Nome yielded $350,000, but the next year they had dropped to one-seventh as much. It is the same with the other beach mines along the coast. Some of them yielded hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they were soon washed out. Still, as I walked up the beach this afternoon, I saw men taking gold out of the sand. In one place they had put up an engine and stretched a rude tent above it. Connected with the engine was a pipe about six inches in diameter, which carried the water to the top of a sluice box twenty or thirty feet high. The men were throwing the sand into the box, and the stream was washing it away, the gold being caught in riffles or iron gratings in the bottom of the box. Farther north, some men were rocking out the gold in hand cradles, and there was patchy mining going on all along the beach. I saw a woman laying out a claim and fencing it with poles. She seemed to resent my inspection. She was a positive woman and did not want visitors. I am told there is still gold in these sands in front of Nome, and that more comes in at every high tide. One can get color almost anywhere by washing the sand. A low-grade deposit amounting to something like 50 cents a cubic yard is said to run for miles along the seashore, and machinery may yet be invented to get this gold out profitably. I doubt not that there is a fortune under the planks of Front Street, and that if the buildings were cleared away from the tundra on which they stand, it could be mined at a profit. Some of the houses have cellars which yielded enough pay dirt to cover the cost of the digging. The gold is scattered through the earth in patches or pockets, and there are probably many pockets yet undiscovered. 
Back of Nome, one can see the tailings from which the gold has been taken. There is a plain about four miles wide running from the shore to a low range of mountains composed of three ancient beaches which have grown up throughout the ages. From these beaches, millions of dollars worth of gold has been mined. I shall not forget my landing at Nome. It was early in the morning when our steamer cast anchor a mile or so out. We were taken from the ship by a steam launch to a landing above which rose a great tower connected by a cable with another tower of an equal height on the mainland. Passengers and baggage were taken from the ocean tower to the land in a platform cage which swung dizzily along on the cable high above the billows. The city of Nome is a town of shreds and patches, the raggedest municipality I have yet struck in Alaska. There are houses enough for 10,000 people, though the population is today not one-tenth of that. The skyline looks like the jaws of a boy just getting his second teeth. The buildings are scattered along streets paved with plank, gravel, or the sand of the seashore. At the upper end is the Eskimo village. It is composed of tents, rude cabins, and shacks of boards, most of them put up by the placer miners and now occupied by squatters and Eskimos. The town proper is farther down the beach. The chief street is Front Street, a wide road paved with thick planks and lined with houses of one or two stories. Some of the buildings contain excellent stores, but there are many vacancies and signs of to rent are to be seen in every block. There are but few big buildings in Nome. The largest is the Golden Gate Hotel, a dreary four-story barn with numerous bay windows across its front and a view as desolate as that of Poverty Flat. The building is of light wood, which carries sound like a fiddle box. The moving of a bed on the ground floor sends a noise to the rooms in the attic. The place is golden only in the high charges for any petty service the guest may want. It cost me ten cents to press the electric button which brings the bellboy, and the bills for laundry are beyond computation. To strangers with the proper introductions, perhaps the most interesting place in Nome is the Log Cabin Club, famous all over Alaska for its hospitality. Its picturesque home is a cabin furnished in keeping with its rustic style. The table in the center of its huge main clubroom is 30 feet long and 5 feet wide. It seems to be a single thick slab and is so polished that one can see his face in it. The front door is of logs and the great hinges are of hand-wrought iron. When Nome was started, there was no lumber to be had and the first homes were tents. Later, frame houses were built over the tents or as an annex to them. Many small shacks went up and then came rambling buildings of two or three stories. Even today, there are but few large houses and many a home has only three or four rooms. One reason for this is the cost of fuel and the difficulty of keeping the houses warm during the cold winter months. The little buildings have to have high stovepipes in order that their draft may not be cut off by the taller structures about them. The result is a little cottage will often have a galvanized stovepipe as high as itself rising above it. Looking down on the town, one sees a thicket of these smokestacks springing out of the roofs. They look like handles to the houses below and make one think of so many Irish shillelaghs, the chimneys being the handles and the houses the knobs on the ends of the clubs. 
Many of the houses have gardens, for Nome is so far north that, though the summers are short, the sun works 18 to 24 hours then, and the people are able to grow lettuce, turnips, and other green stuff. Nearly every woman has some flowers in her front windows, and some have flowers growing outside. Entering, you find these homes very well furnished. They have their pianos and other musical instruments. They are well equipped with books and magazines. In fact, with all the furnishings of the cultured homes of the states. On the street are many women and men as well dressed as those of our cities, and there are others clad in the rough clothing necessary for hard labor in the far north. There are miners wearing shoes laced to their knees or white or black rubber boots to the waist. There are Eskimos in mukluks and skin garments. Their fat Mongolian features look out of fur hoods with bristles as long as a hat pin. Some are clad in parkas of fur or cotton, with their feet in boots of sealskin to the knees. There are little Eskimo women with babies tied to their backs. The faces of the little ones peep out over the shoulders of their mothers. The Eskimos look queerest when the rain comes, and this just now is most of the time. Then the natives put on waterproof coats made of the bladders of the walrus, a skin as thin as paper which turns the rain and keeps one dry in the wettest of weather. This skin is in small pieces sewed together in bulbous patches. Among the most striking business features of Nome are the curio shops, stores selling mining materials and those dealing in furs of every description. Some of the latter have polar bear skins costing from $40 to $75 apiece, glacier bear skins worth one-fourth as much, and brown bear skins of great size. The stores have also white fox skins, reindeer hides, and skins of the ermine, which are as white as snow with a pinch of black on the end of the tail. The places selling mining supplies and hardware are especially large. I went through one hardware store that does a business of several hundred thousand dollars a year. Nome is a wholesale center for the mining camps, not only of the Seward Peninsula, but also for those of Arctic Alaska and for much of northeastern Siberia as well. The provision stores carry stocks out of proportion to the size of the community, especially in the fall when full supplies have to be laid in for the long winter months. The last steamer comes late in October. From then on, for six months or more, the country is icebound, and such goods as are brought in must be on dog sleds. Freight charges for such supplies double their price. Just now, in the heart of midsummer, the weather is as soft and warm as in New York or Massachusetts. The air is so full of ozone that one seems to be breathing champagne. It is light the clock around, and I can read my newspaper at midnight. Along in October, the Nomites will first sign blocks of ice floating down from the north. Perhaps the day after, the water will take on a slushy look and in a little while Nome will be frozen in for seven months of winter. The thermometer drops to below zero and stays there, sometimes going to 40 below and back from the coast, still lower. Many of the people leave Nome to spend the winter in the States, returning the following summer. Those who remain adopt a dress much like that of the Eskimos. They have fur coats, shoes and boots, and protect their hands with fur mittens. Most of the citizens are confined to the town at this time, but there are trips with dog sleds across country, and except during blizzards, 
there is communication between Nome and Council City. I am told by the residents that the winter is the most interesting time of the year. Then the people have dances, socials, fairs, and amateur theatricals. It is quite the thing to go across country on skis from the town to the creeks and mining camps. Nome has a ski club and tournaments are held in which prizes are awarded both for jumping and for speed. Slaying with dogs is another amusement. A common winter sight is Milady wrapped in furs, sitting in a dog sled with the driver running behind, holding on to the handlebars. Such sleds are used to go to dances held in the neighboring camps, and the men run races with each other. I like the Nomites. There are but few drones among them, and most of them are good boosters. They do not expect their city to have the population it once had, but they say that owing to the large area of low-grade gold earth about it, Nome is bound to be a mining center for generations to come. They say also that it will always be the chief port of the Seward Peninsula, a territory which has vast mineral resources yet to be developed. End of chapter 23